0: Romania,
1: on Shtetl on the Shortwave, we're going to hear from the magician of short story writing, Israeli author Edgar Keret. Also, we're going to speak with Eloge Butera, a witness at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and find out how you can get involved in a citywide treasure hunt of Montreal's Jewish history at Recollection. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and Twitter. And to download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave, you can go to iTunes or stream them from shtetlmontreal.com.
2: In Romania, is the kids who drink and dance and waste their drink, men, for I dig, 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 hey
1: this is Stetle on the shortwave and i'm your host Mary Kramer and i thought it'd be fun to play a little bit of Barry sisters It's been a long time since I've played them. That was Romania. And I used to play this every single week to start off the show. I was so into it, but uh, I don't know, just taking a trip down memory lane. And uh, it's also one of the most fun songs ever. I love the Barry sisters. So today we have a really great show lined up for you. We're going to be talking with... um, Zev Moses of the Interactive Museum of Jewish Montreal about this cool event happening next week in Montreal. Um, And he's going to explain the whole thing to us. It's a treasure hunt of Montreal's Jewish history. We're also going to talk with Eloge Butera, who is a uh, survivor of the Rwandan genocide and who's been in Montreal since 2002 and was a witness at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Montreal last week, uh, all about residential schools in Canada but first we're gonna hear from Edgar Carrot. If you haven't heard of him, go check him out, go take out some books of his. Uh, You can listen to, he has a book on tape. His new book is on tape and uh, read by, uh, the stories are read by a whole bunch of really amazing, famous people. And we're going to hear one of those today. Um, Edgar Carrot is a filmmaker and he is um, really, really the master of the short story today. I find he's really fun and accessible and always very, very surprising. And he was here last week in Montreal for Uh, the Blue Metropolis Literary Festival, where Ariella Friedman caught up with him and recorded the interview we're going to hear. And Ariella is a contributor to Shtetl Magazine, a professor at Concordia University's Liberal Arts College, and she blogs at the Philosophical Brothel. Ariella was the very, very lucky woman who got to be closed up in a room with this bright author, who I think fills many bookworms, literary fantasies. And we're going to get Started right now with some insights from Carrot on uh, his writing life.
3: Yeah, I always say that you know that there is some sort of an anatomy of writing, and you could write from your brain or write from your heart. I re- always feel that I write from my kishkes, you mm. know, from my guts. Uh, uh, there is something kind of almost irrational in the way that uh, I write. It, it, it really doesn't come from a, a, a thought; it comes from a sensation, you know, some 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 place deep in the. Unconscious.
4: How do you know when you're getting it right?
3: I don't know, you know, when I write, you know, during the process, I don't know. But uh, but it's after you finish a draft and you look at it, you know, after a week or two, and you keep working on it. Then at some stage you're gonna have the notion if it works or not. But uh, when you write. It's just kind of a, uh, it's like, I don't know, bungee jumping, you know. While you jump, you don't know if uh, the rope is going to hold mm. or not.
4: Is it a frightening process for you, or do you like that feeling of jumping off?
3: No, I find life very frightening, frightening but uh, writing is easy, you know I'm saying? If I uh, make you a cup of coffee, I can spill it over your clothes and get you dirty. But uh, if I write a story, worse comes to worse. I wrote a bad story, you know, so there's no no harm is done. So
4: there isn't as much at stake, or what's at stake happens differently?
3: No, I, f- I think that because because uh, it's not stressful, it allows me to be sincere and honest, you know, because there's no consequences, you know, it's just an idea put on paper and I really don't have all those uh, restraints that I, that I feel I have while when I live. you know. I feel, find writing much easier than living.
1: I guess you can say that when you're an accomplished writer like Edgar Carrot, and I don't know, is it me? Or when he says, spilling coffee on your clothes and getting you dirty, I don't know, I don't know. I think uh, Ariella had a really great job there interviewing Edgar Carrot. Anyways, here comes what I think is a very uh, useful metaphor about writing and dogs.
3: And
4: you teach writing as well, right?
3: Yeah, I, I teach in Bengal University.
4: So how do you encourage your students to have that same feeling of freedom around writing?
3: Well, I I think that the most difficult thing is really to make people uh, lose the kind of pathos or aura of importance that they have around writing. And the moment that they do that, they can be themselves. So I think a lot of the process is basically just not, not approaching the page as if now you have to write a masterpiece, but saying, I'm going to write anything, you know, and maybe something good will present itself.
4: I remember once being in Tmol Shilsham in Jerusalem, and one of your stories was a placemat. Yeah. And my husband said, I can't eat shakshuka on this, this is literature. <laughs> I guess you're saying you have to let go of that idea. Yeah. Of it being something that you can't
3: yeah Well, you get know, dirty. I can tell you that uh, when I've written my first story, I printed a copy of it, and I went to my brother. And my brother had read it while walking his dog. And when he finished kind of reading it, you know, he said to me, It's amazing. And you know, while I was saying that his dog was taking a shit, you know, and he said, It's really a beautiful story. Do you have another copy of it? And I said, Yes. And he bent down and he picked the dog poo with it, you know. And for me, it was actually a very positive moment because in that moment I realized that the story doesn't exist in a paper. So it could be a placement, it could be a toilet paper, it doesn't matter.
1: Picking up his dog poo with a with story. I think uh, it's, a, it's actually it's a useful metaphor to think about any art that you create that it could be uh, used to pick up dog poo. Um, in this next clip, uh, Carrot uses another good metaphor to illustrate his use of humor.
4: Sometimes I think I should feel sadder when I read your stories. They're about very sad things, but they are so funny or they make me feel comforted somehow, even though the content seems really bleak.
3: I feel that humor for me is very much a kind of a, like an airbag, you know, in a car. Mm. It kind of presents itself when I feel kind of out of balance or in danger. When I'm afraid to be pathetic, when I'm too honest, you know, it's there, it's there and when humor appears, it's never kind of a goal. It's just it's just something that kind of comes along when I reach kind of some tight spot.
4: It's a symptom.
3: Not a goal, maybe? No, it's, it's, not, it's not even a symptom. It's kind of a defense mechanism. Mm.
1: So humor as an airbag. I like that. Uh, we're going to take a little break because I think that uh, while some people are madly in love and obsessed with Edgar Caret, it's very possible that many people have not ever heard of him, let alone heard one of his stories. So I wanted to treat you, the listener, with one of Edgar Carrot's very new short stories in his, uh, in his book, Suddenly, A Knock at the Door. And I really like this story, and it's read by the actor Stanley Tucci. And uh, I thought it would be a fun treat to get to listen to a little bit of storytelling, short storytelling today. On should to also take a listen. This is uh, a short story by Edgar Carrot in his new book, Suddenly, A Knock on the Door.
5: Creative writing, read by Stanley Tucci. The first story Maya wrote was about a world in which people split themselves in two instead of reproducing. In that world, every person could, at any given moment, turn into two beings, each half his-slash-her age. Some chose to do this when they were young. For instance, an 18-year-old might split into two 9-year-olds. Others would wait until they'd established themselves professionally and financially and go for it only in middle age. The heroine of Maya's story was splitless. She had reached the age of eighty and, despite all the social pressure, insisted on not splitting. At the end of the story, she died. It was a good story, except for the ending. There was something depressing about that part, Aviad thought. Depressing and predictable. But in the writing workshop she had signed up for, Maya actually got a lot of compliments on the ending. The instructor, who was supposed to be this well-known writer, even though Aviad had never heard of him, told her that there was something soul-piercing about the banality of the ending or some other piece of crap. Aviad saw how happy that compliment made Maya. She was very excited when she told him about it. She recited what the writer had said to her the way people recite a verse from the Bible, and Aviad, who had originally tried to suggest a different ending, backpedaled and said that it was all a matter of taste and that he really didn't understand much about it. It had been her mother's idea that she should go to a creative writing workshop. She'd said that a friend's daughter had attended one and enjoyed it very much. Aviad also thought it would be good for Maya to get out more, to do something with herself. He could always bury himself in work, but since the miscarriage, she never left the house. Whenever he came home, we found her in the living room, sitting up straight on the couch, not reading, not watching TV, not even crying. When Maya hesitated about the course, Aviad knew how to persuade her. "'Go once. Give it a try,' he said, the way a kid goes to day camp. Later he realized that it had been a little insensitive of him to use a child as an example after what they'd been through two months before. But Maya actually smiled and said that day camp might be just what she needed. The second story she wrote was about a world in which you could see only the people you loved. The protagonist was a married man in love with his wife, One day his wife walked right into him in the hallway, and the glass he was holding fell and shattered on the floor. A few days later, she sat down on him as he was dozing in an armchair. Both times she wriggled out of it with an excuse. She'd had something else on her mind. She hadn't been looking when she sat down. But the husband started to suspect that she didn't love him anymore. To test his theory, he decided to do something drastic. He shaved off the left side of his mustache. He came home with half a mustache, clutching a bouquet of anemones. His wife thanked him for the flowers and smiled. He could sense her groping the air as she tried to give him a kiss. Maya called the story half a mustache and told Aviad that when she had read it out loud in the workshop, some people cried. Aviad said, Wow, and kissed her on the forehead. That night they fought about some stupid little thing. She'd forgotten to pass on a message or something like that, and he yelled at her. He was to blame, and in the end he apologized. I had a hellish day at work, he said, and he stroked her leg, trying to make up for his outburst. Do you forgive me? She forgave him. The workshop instructor had published a novel and a collection of short stories. Neither had been much of a success, but they'd had a few good reviews. At least that's what the saleswoman at a bookstore near Aviad's office told him. The novel was very thick, 624 pages. Aviad bought the book of short stories. He kept it in his desk and tried to read a little during lunch breaks. Each story in the collection took place in a different country. It was a kind of gimmick. The blurb on the back cover said that the writer had worked for years as a tour guide and had traveled in Cuba and Africa, and that his travels had influenced his writing. There was also a small black-and-white photograph of him. In it, he had the kind of smug smile of someone who feels lucky to be who he is. The writer had told Maya, she said to Aviad, that when the workshop was over, he'd send her stories to his editor. And although she shouldn't get her hopes up, publishers these days were desperate for new talent. Her third story started out funny. It was about a pregnant woman who gave birth to a cat. The hero of the story was the husband, who suspected that the cat wasn't his. A fat ginger tomcat that slept on the lid of the dumpster right below the window of the couple's bedroom gave the husband a condescending look every time he went downstairs to throw out the garbage. In the end, there was a violent clash between the husband and the cat. The husband threw a stone at the cat who countered with bites and scratches. The injured husband, his wife, and the kitten she was breastfeeding went to the clinic for him to get a rabies shot. He was humiliated and in pain, but tried not to cry while they were waiting. The kitten, sensing his suffering, curled itself from its mother's embrace, went over to him and licked his face tenderly, offering a consoling meow. Did you hear that? the mother asked emotionally. He said, Daddy. At that point, the husband could no longer hold back his tears. And when Aviad read that passage, he had to try hard not to cry, too. Maya said that she'd started writing the story even before she knew she was pregnant again. Isn't it weird, she asked, how my brain didn't know yet, but my subconscious did? The next Tuesday, when Aviad was supposed to pick her up after the workshop, he arrived half an hour early, parked his car in the lot, and went to find her. Maya was surprised to see him in the classroom, and he insisted that she introduce him to the writer. The writer reeked of body lotion. He shook Aviad's hand limply and told him that if Maya had chosen him for a husband, he must be a very special person. Three weeks later, Aviad signed up for a beginner's creative writing class. He didn't say anything about it to Maya. And to be on the safe side, he told his secretary that if he had any calls from home, she should say that he was in an important meeting and couldn't be disturbed. The other members of the class were elderly women who gave him dirty looks. The thin, young instructor wore a headscarf and the women in the class gossiped about her, saying that she lived in a settlement in the occupied territories and had cancer. She asked everyone to do an exercise in automatic writing. Write whatever comes into your head, she said. Don't think, just write. Aviad tried to stop thinking. It was very hard. The old woman around him wrote with nervous speed, like students racing to finish an exam before the teacher tells him to put their pens down, and after a few minutes, he began writing too. The story he wrote was about a fish that was swimming happily along in the sea when a wicked witch turned it into a man. The fish couldn't come to terms with his transformation and decided to chase down the wicked witch and make her turn him back into a fish. Since he was an especially quick and enterprising fish, he managed to get married while he was pursuing her, and even to establish a small company that imported plastic products from the Far East. With the help of the enormous knowledge he had gained as a fish that had crossed the Seven Seas, the company began to thrive and even went public. Meanwhile, the Wicked Witch, who was a little tired after all her years of wickedness, decided to find all the people and creatures she'd cast spells on, apologize to them, and restore them to their natural state. At one point, she even went to see the fish she had turned into a man. The fish's secretary asked her to wait until he'd finished a satellite meeting with his partners in Taiwan. At that stage in his life, the fish could hardly remember that he was in fact a fish, and his company now controlled half the world. The witch waited several hours, but when she saw that the meeting wouldn't be ending any time soon, she climbed onto her broom and flew off. The fish kept doing better and better, until one day, when he was really old, He looked out the window of one of the dozens of huge shoreline buildings he'd purchased in a smart real estate deal and saw the sea. And suddenly, he remembered that he was a fish, a very rich fish who controlled many subsidiary companies that were traded on stock markets around the world, but still a fish. A fish who, for years, had not tasted the salt of the sea. When the instructor saw that Aviad had put down his pen, she gave him an inquiring look. I don't have an ending, he whispered apologetically, keeping his voice down so as not to disturb the old ladies, who were still writing.
6: Er hat sich auf
5: Shortwave auf CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal.
1: We're back on Statel on the shortwave on CKUT90.3 FM. And I hope you enjoyed that story by Edgar Carrot. I thought it was pretty amazing some of the, uh, the images and some of the, uh, the I think the, the moral of the story is basically, if your partner tells you that she or he or whatever is going to be taking a creative writing class, I'd be pretty wary. Anyways, uh, so we're gonna hear a little bit more from Ariella's talk with uh, Edgar Carrot. And in this next clip, um, he talks about politics. Carrot is from Israel, and he does write a lot about the situation there. And he tells us a little bit about how he views the the definition of political.
4: Amasaz and David Grossman have also been very overt as political voices. They've taken that role on themselves and your relationship to politics seems more oblique. I read an interview where you said that you liked Kurt Vonnegut because he doesn't seem political but he is actually really political and I feel like your writing might have some of that
3: yeah, well, you know, I, I've been ri- writing, you know, op-ed sometimes, I know, for the New York Times, The Guardian, uh, other publications overseas and in Israel. And and whenever I write, I kind of write from a position of ambiguity. I'm not a relativist, but I really feel that many times in Israel one narrative excludes all the others, and I try in that sense many times to, to confuse the convinced as, just as much as trying to convince people that I know the answer, you know, to, to, what, to the future of Israel. I really feel that if there will be more kind of ambiguity and self-inspection among the people in this region, you know, it would, only, it would only make it a better place.
4: You called fiction an exercise in empathy, so maybe fiction can help teach politics to empathize or understand the position of the other?
3: For sure, I think that people make make uh, this kind of categorical difference, saying this is political, this is not political. We must remember that you know politics is basically made from human emotions. You know, it could be fear, it could be greed, it could be you know uh, kindness. So, so I don't see this kind of a a binaric relationship, saying this is political, this is not political. I think that many times we confuse it with pragmatic, and we like to call political things that are pragmatic. Like if I'm saying who's the bad guy or sh- whose ass should be kicked, then I'm political. And if I'm just showing a complex situation, then the fact that I don't decide who's the winner of one contest or another makes it apolitical. Uh, my definition of uh, political is slightly different.
4: That being political means allowing for the ambiguity of a situation or being attentive to that?
3: Yeah, I think think being political doesn't necessarily mean that you feel that uh, you own some kind of exclusivity about being right. I think many times, for me, being political is also trying to understand the other and accepting, him, even if you don't accept his idea, trying to understand where it's coming from, you know, uh, I come from a very special family. My my siblings, you know, my brother uh, is an anti-Zionist uh, anarchist, and my sister is an ultra-orthodox with eleven children and nine grandchildren who lived who lived a long time uh, in the territory. So, and we're very happy and functional family, you know. Uh, and the idea is that we can uh, disagree about uh, about ideas, but at the same time. Uh, At the same time, uh, we have something in common, something that connects us. And that love and emotional connection and our respect of the other, you know, is uh, something that is crucial. And I I would like to see more of that in the Israeli society, in the Israeli political dialogue.
1: I really like the line, to confuse the convinced. And uh, he certainly does come from quite an interesting family. My God. I think. Anybody who's interested in this uh, uh, situation in the Middle East or curious about it uh, would love to be a fly on the wall at a family dinner with uh, Edgar Carrot's family, I I would think. Anyways, uh, in this next uh, clip, the last clip of uh, Ariella Friedman's discussion with Edgar Carrot, she talks to him a little bit about the difference between being Jewish and Israeli, where he identifies more.
4: I wanted to ask you about being a Jewish writer and being an Israeli writer if you felt like those were different things and how you thought about those two categories?
3: Yeah, well, I think, you know, that actually Jewish writers or diaspora writers were always more of an influence to me than Israeli writers because they're writing colloquial speech. I, mean, I feel closer to Balshevitz Singer or Shalom Aleichem than to Amos also yoshua I whom I really like and respect as writers, but I don't feel as if I'm writing in this tradition. You know, I'm more the, the kind of a, the guy on the train who talks to somebody about the problem that he has with his kids and than maybe some sort of a secular prophet who can tell how the country should, should look like or how it's going to look like in a few years.
1: So that was uh, Shtetl's interview with Israeli author and filmmaker Edgar Keret. His new book is Suddenly a Knock at the Door, and uh, it promises to be just as as amazing as the last ones, I'm sure. And if you Google him, you can watch a few videos. I'm going to put a couple up on the Shtetl Facebook page. Um, If you're listening, you can like Shtetl on Facebook and find out all kinds of things that are happening in the city and little clips of Jewish arts and culture. And uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, before we speak with Zev Moses of the Interactive Museum of Jewish Montreal, who's putting on this event called Recollection. But we're going to listen to a little bit of uh, Carolina, uh, her song Afehad Lobali, because... I don't know, Edgar Carrot writes in Hebrew and uh, although his his, uh, stories are translated into English in many languages, I think it's nice to remember uh, the language that he writes in. If only we could read it, it would be awesome. Uh, So this is Carolina and I'm going to go get Zev Moses on the ringer. (laughs)
7: When I sat down and I you Or maybe I dreamt I el in the distance, I I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm going to go i i i
1: Shtetl on the shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM and we're going to be talking with Zev Moses Uh, there's an event happening called Recollection and it's a photo hunt of Montreal's Jewish heritage and we've got Zev Moses on the line right now how are you doing Zev?
8: I'm good how are
1: you Tamara? I'm very good very good it's always good to talk to you and this is a very intriguing event can you tell us what this means a treasure hunt of Montreal's Jewish history?
8: Sure, we. I actually have never heard Treasure Hunt, but it's perfect. Uh, it's like a perfect description. Um, basically, we're so. I'm the director of the Interactive Museum of Jewish Montreal, and we we collect Montreal's uh, Jewish past and stories and things like that. Um, and we're teaming up with the Jewish Public Library Archives, um, and they've been collecting Montreal's Jewish past for for decades now. So we're teaming up, and we're actually crowdsourcing. Uh, the Jewish history and Jewish stories of Montreal. So we want to get as many people in the uh, in the community, um, or or just generally from Montreal, to be involved in collecting some of this um, some of this story, so we can collect more. Um, because obviously, we're, we're small organizations, we can't do that much on our own. So the more we can engage the the public to be part of it, um, the better. And we thought that maybe it would be more fun if we uh, incentivized it with prizes and a competition. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's what we're doing next Sunday, um, May 12th.
1: So how do people get involved if they want to participate?
8: Um, it's it's really easy, actually. They can visit our website. Um, it's uh, www.recollectionmtl.com, um, and there's a really easy sign-up sheet. It's totally free. It takes about 30 seconds to sign up. Uh, you can sign up as a solo um, and we can match you with the team. We have lots of fun people to team you up with. Or you can gather a few of your friends and, uh, and sign up that way as well.
1: So like basically people are going to get clues and they have to find them around the city of Montreal and take pictures of them?
8: You got it. You got it. Exactly. Mostly it's photographing things. Uh, we're going to give some people some addresses of things that um, that have not been photographed before and that we want to make sure are preserved. We're also going to give old photographs with clues, and people are going to have to find where, uh, where they are and re-photograph them. Um, as well, there's a bunch of activities. We're going to be doing a lot of mashup stuff with the photos, uh, and it all ends at the end of the evening, uh, or at the end of the day, with an uploading party that's going to be super interactive and lots of, uh, lots of sharing what everyone collects during the day, and we'll give away prizes for uh, some of the best content we collect.
1: And that's happening at Opatrovis. On Mount Royal, exactly.
8: Yeah, Okay. that's on Montreal, right near uh, Saint Denis. Um, so yeah, the, the event starts the registrations at uh, 12 noon next Sunday, and then uh, we'll we'll send everyone off on the race, and then everyone comes back around five o'clock for the uploading party.
1: That's very cool. Really, really cool. And yeah, is- it's going to be fun. Um, is there anything else going on in uh, in the city in terms of Montreal's Jewish history that you'd want to share with people?
8: Um, yeah, you know, there's, this is like, I guess the weather's gotten good and everyone wants to be outside all the time, and so do I. So all of our events right now are outdoors. Um, so actually this Sunday, um, not to get too ahead of ourselves for next Sunday, but this Sunday uh, we're participating in Jane's Walks. I don't know. Do you know about Jane's Walks?
1: I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it's about. It's like different so historical Clark, tours of the city?
8: Not even. It's it's kind of everything. It's it's wonderful. It's named after Jane Jacobs who's a um kind of a this like really important um urban thinker um and kind of challenged the idea of of building massive buildings and tearing down neighborhoods with highways and things like that. Uh and really she's all about different, you know, small-scale neighborhoods and and life within them. Um so she passed away a few years ago, and they started a um, this uh, this kind of walking tour thing, where any community member anywhere—it's all around the world—but um, there's over 60 walks in Montreal this year. Um, so we're we're participating. We're doing a walk um, with Sarah Tobin, who made a uh, who created a book about. Montreal's old synagogue, little, little shuls and shulach um, in the town of Land. so we'll be leaving from the Bag street shul at 10 AM on Sunday, and we'll be ending on Fairmount somewhere around Esplanade or, or, or St. Germain, um, about 12 PM. So it's free as well. It's really fun to do. You learn a lot of kind of small details and hidden details about streets and alleyways and, and buildings that are that are still there but sometimes they're missing their uh no one knows about their jewish past.
1: okay i'm gonna ask you one last question and then we're uh we're gonna go talk to eloge butera uh okay what is kind of not to give anything away in advance but in terms yeah. of recollection what's an example of a clue you might give
8: um hmm, i'm trying to think of something hmm well, there's a lot of clues where you have to, I don't want to give away the best one, you know, there is one where you have to climb a mountain. Um, that's <laughs> the hardest clue. I, I don't know if anyone's going to be able to do it. Um, that's our <laughs> clue that we give to like the most like crazy competitors. Okay. Yeah, you have to climb a mountain.
1: <laughs> and I the,
8: can't say anything more.
1: Okay. But other clues are less like physically challenging.
8: Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about Mount Royal, by the way. That's not really a mountain, but uh, I'm oh. talking about a mountain.
1: Is it in yeah. Canada?
8: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just feasible within the time time. Italy. Really. I'm hoping that someone's going to try it. It would be crazy if they did. It's kind of like you know, in um, in Harry Potter uh, in Quidditch, if you get the Golden Snitch or whatever, it's like that. That's that's the uh, the prize. And I mean there's plenty there's most of the clues are in Montreal. In fact, ninety nine percent of them are so um, but this one's just a little bit outside of the city.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to participate next week in recollection. Sounds very cool. Cool. Thank I you, hope to see Seth. everyone there. Thanks so much for coming on the show. All right, take care. Okay, bye. That was Zev Moses, really cool guy in Montreal doing a lot of interesting things with Montreal's Jewish history. You should check out the website uh, for the Interactive Museum of J- Jewish Montreal and consider participating next week in this, uh, in this different way of recovering and, and learning about Montreal's Jewish heritage. And you do not have to be Jewish at all to participate. That's really not a requirement. So we're gonna take a little bit of a break and then we're gonna talk with Eloge Butera who was a witness at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission you <laughs> last week. Approximately 140,000 Indigenous Canadians were subjected to residential schools in Canada, and the last of these schools was closed right here in Quebec in 1979, and I think the hope of the commission is to shed light on this situation and also to bring healing. Uh, Eloge himself is a survivor of the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, and he's made Canada his home since 2002. He's a lawyer based in Ottawa and has been involved in human rights activism and genocide Education, and uh, we're going to take a, a little break for some music and call up Eloge and talk to him from Ottawa.
6: has gone There'll be sweetness on our tongues once more We threw ourselves on the mercy of the earth. If and souls have the answer, then the act itself will be louder than the word. And be on your side, and I'll be on your side. And I'll be on your side, I'll on your side and I'll be on your side.
1: So that was History Book by Dry the River, an English band. And uh, I'm just uh, having a little difficulty getting Eloge on the phone. So we're going to hear a little bit of music from the uh, Tel Aviv session. It's Idan Reichel and Vierfarka Touré. And uh, hopefully we'll get him on the phone in just a sec. Shtetl fans and listeners it's Tamara and we're back on Shtetl on the shortwave on CKUT and um, it looks like I'm not going to be able to get in touch with Eloge Butera right now but I will get an interview with him so we can find out about his experience of the truth and reconciliation commission so um, that I keep my promise and, and that we can uh, we can hear from him about his experience and um, it's funny because you know while I was trying to call him I actually had a call from somebody else Ira Glass and he said Tamara I'm, I'm listening to the show and I, I see like there's the potential that the interview that you set up might not work do you want me to like help bail you out in some kind of way he's really, really something else, that Ira Glass. Anyways, so um, instead, we're going to listen to another story by Edgar Keret, and it is one that is uh, the title name of his new book, Suddenly a Knock at the Door, and it's a bit more political than the first one that I played, but uh, equally as good. So uh, take a listen, and Ira Glass, thanks so much for bailing us out here at Shtetl on the Shortwave.
9: Suddenly a Knock on the Door, read by Ira Glass. Tell me a story, the bearded man sitting on my living room sofa commands. The situation, I must say, is anything but pleasant. I'm someone who writes stories, not someone who tells them. And even that isn't something I do on demand. The last time anybody asked me to tell him a story it was my son. That was a year ago. I told him something about a fairy and a ferret. I don't remember what exactly. And within two minutes, he was fast asleep. But this situation is fundamentally different. Because my son doesn't have a beard or a pistol because my son asked for the story nicely, and this man is simply trying to rob me of it. I try to explain to the bearded man that if he puts his pistol away, it will only work in his favor, in our favor. It's hard to think of a story with the barrel of a loaded pistol pointed at your head. But the Guy insists. In this country, he explains, if you want something, you have to use force. He just got here from Sweden, and in Sweden it's completely different. Over there, if you want something, you ask politely, and most of the time you get it but not in the stifling, muggy Middle East. All it takes is one week in this place to figure out how things work. Or rather, how things don't work. The Palestinians asked for a state, nicely. Did they get one? The hell they did. So they switched to blowing up kids on buses, and people started listening. The settlers wanted a dialogue. Did anybody pick up on it? No way. So they started getting physical, pouring hot oil on the border patrolmen. Suddenly, they had an audience. And this country might makes right. And it doesn't matter if it's about politics or economics or a parking space. Brute force is the only language we understand. Sweden, the place the bearded guy made aliyah from, is progressive and is way up there in quite a few areas. Sweden isn't just ABBA or IKEA or the Nobel Prize. Sweden is a world unto itself, and whatever they have, they got by peaceful means. In Sweden... If he'd gone to the ace of bass soloists, knocked on her door and asked her to sing for him, she'd have invited him in and made him a cup of tea, and then she'd have pulled out her acoustic guitar from under the bed and played for him, all this with a smile. But here, I mean, if he hadn't been flashing a pistol, I'd have thrown him out right away. Look, I try to reason. Look yourself, the bearded guy grumbles, and Cox's pistol. It's either a story or a bullet between the eyes. I see my choices are limited. The guy means business. Two people are sitting in a room, I begin. Suddenly there's a knock on the door. The bearded guy stiffens, and for a moment I think maybe the story is getting to him, but it isn't. He's listening to something else. There's a knock on the door. Open it, he tells me, and don't try anything. Get rid of whoever it is and do it fast, or this is going to end badly. The young man at the door is doing a survey. He has a few questions, short ones, about the high humidity here in summer and how it affects my disposition. I tell him I'm not interested, but he pushes his way inside anyway. Who's that? He asks me, pointing at the bearded guy. That's my nephew from Sweden, I lie. His father died in an avalanche, and he's here for the funeral. We're just going over the will. Could you please respect our privacy and leave? Come on, man, the poster says and pats me on the shoulder. It's just a few questions. Give a guy a chance to earn a few bucks. They pay me per respondent. He flops down on the sofa, clutching his binder. The Swede takes a seat next to him. I'm still standing, trying to sound like I mean it. I'm asking you to leave, I tell him. Your timing is way off. Way off, eh? He opens his plastic binder and pulls out a big revolver. Why is my timing off? Because I'm darker? Because I'm not good enough? When it comes to Swedes, you got all the time in the world? But for a Moroccan? For a war veteran? who left pieces of his spleen behind in Lebanon, you can't spare a fucking minute. I try to reason with him, to tell him it's not that way at all, that he'd simply caught me at a delicate point in my conversation with the Swede. But the pollster raises his revolver to his lips and signals me to shut up. Vamos, he says. Stop making excuses. Sit down over there and out with it. Out with what, I ask. Truth is, now I'm pretty uptight. The Swede has a pistol, too. Things might get out of hand. East is east and west is west and all that. Different mentalities. Or else the Swede could lose it simply because he wants the story all to himself. Solo. Don't get me started, the pollster warns. I have a short fuse. Out with the story. Make it quick. Yeah, the Swede chimes in. Pulls out his piece too. I clear my throat and start all over again. Three people are sitting in a room. And no, suddenly there's a knock on the door, the Swede announces poster doesn't quite get it, but plays along with him. Get going, he says. And no knocking on the door. Tell us something else. Surprise us. I stop short, take a deep breath. Both of them are staring at me. How do I always get myself into these situations? I bet nothing like this happens to Amos Oz or David Grossman. Suddenly there's a knock on the door. Their gaze turns menacing. I shrug. It's not about me. There's nothing in my story to connect it to the knock. Get rid of him. The poster orders me. Get rid of him, whoever it is. I open the door. Just a crack. It's a pizza delivery guy. Are you Carrot? He asks. Yes, I say. But I didn't order a pizza. It says here. 14 Zamenhof Street. He snaps, pointing at the printed delivery slip and pushing his way inside. So what I say? I didn't order a pizza. Family size, he insists. Half pineapple, half anchovy, prepaid credit card. Just give me my tip and I'm out of here. Are you here for a story, too? The sweet interrogates. What story? The pizza guy asks. It's obvious he's lying. He's not very good at it. Pull it out, the pollster prods. Come on, out with a pistol already. I don't have a pistol, the pizza guy admits awkwardly and draws a cleaver out from under his cardboard tray. But I'll cut him into julienne strips unless he coughs up a good one on the double. The three of them. Are on the sofa. The Swede on the right, then the pizza guy, then the pollster. I can't do it like this, I tell them. I can't get a story going with the three of you here and your weapons and all that. Go take a walk around the block, and by the time you get back, I'll have something for you. The asshole is going to call the cops, the pollster tells the Swede. What's he thinking? We were born yesterday? Come on, give us one. We'll be on our way, the pizza guy begs. A short one. Don't be so anal. Things are tough, you know? Unemployment, suicide bombings, Iranians. People are hungry for something else. What do you think brought law abiding guys like us this far? We're desperate, man. Desperate. I clear my throat and start again. Four people are sitting in a room. It's hot. They're bored. The air conditioner's on the blink. One of them asks for a story, the second one joins in, then the third. That's not a story, the poster protests. That's an eyewitness report. It's exactly what's happening here right now. Exactly what we're trying to run away from. Don't you go and dump reality on us like a garbage truck. Use your imagination, man. Create. Invent. Take it all the way. I nod and start again. A man is sitting in a room all by himself. He's lonely. He's a writer. He wants to write a story. It's been a long time since he wrote his last story, and he misses it. He misses the feeling of creating something out of something. That's right. Something out of something. Because something out of nothing is when you make up something out of thin air, in which case it has no value. Anybody can do that. But something out of something means it was really there the whole time, inside you. You discover it as part of something new. It's never happened before. The man decides to write a story about the situation. Not the political situation and not the social situation either. He decides to write a story about the human situation. human condition. The human condition the way he's experiencing it right now. But he draws a blank. No story presents itself. Because the human condition the way he's experiencing it right now doesn't seem to be worth a story. He's just about to give up when suddenly I warned you already. The sweet interrupts me. No knock on the door. I've got to. I insist. Without a knock on the door there's no story. Let him. The pizza guy says softly him some slack. You want to knock on the door? Okay. Have your knock on the door. Just so long as it brings us a story.
1: Pretty good story. You can always count on Ira Glass. Um, so, uh, wait a second. Ira's on the phone. No, it's okay. Just the story. Thank you. Thanks. Um, anyways, so uh, that takes us to the end of Stadl on the Short Wave. Sorry about the uh, the Ilosh um, Butera interview, but we'll uh, we'll have more from him uh, in the future. And and I think it's important to hear about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened here. So I'd really like to hear his perspective. Um, and as long as uh, we're talking about the amazingness of Sweden, I thought it would be good to go out with some uh, some Ace of Base. So have a great week, and we'll be back in two weeks on STEDL and the shortwave on CKUP.